You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Paul's going to speak to us tonight about his newest book called The Rise of Scripture, and I'm not going to say anything about it so that I don't take anything from him. It's an incredible text, and I read it, and it's one of those books that I'm going to have to read twice, probably three times, for my slow mind to get it, but it's an exception, exceptional text. With that being said, Abuna, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for uh, coming. Yes, this is my first uh, stop uh, on uh, track. Two of my former students planned for me to go. They called it a book tour and so on. So I said, hurry up, because I'm going to turn 75 next October, so I won't have more energy. I would like to say a few words, uh, some about the book itself, and then some about the really value and function of Scripture, because this is what I dedicated my life to since the age of 13. I used to teach... Uh, People older than I am started with 13. It's just the book uh, started uh, with the result of my work, technically. You know, I've been with the Bible for 60 years and I taught it and I studied it and I came up with the thesis theory that's totally novel. I mean, no one who's going to read this book say, Well, I heard it before. No, no one has heard it before. Bits and pieces you may have, but not the totality of the view. And I wanted to concentrate on uh, the Old Testament, that's the original scripture. And towards the end, you know, I had to touch a little bit on the New Testament. And the New Testament, I have worked a lot of years. I wrote four volumes of introduction and uh, eight commentaries. Uh, so, in my research, that's the way I am. I, I don't know where I'm going at the beginning, because if you know what you're doing, then you know it all. Why are you studying? <laughs> <laughs> to research, see if it is so. And it worked with the New Testament, and I uh, added it. So now the rise of Scripture actually uh, is comprehensive of my entire view. Remember that. My book is not the Bible. And let no one fool you on TV, this is what I write. No, the Bible is written and it's closed. Okay, remember at the end of Revelation. You can't add, you can deduct. That's it. And actually towards the end of the Bible, I refer to it as the it. That's why you will notice, especially here, but in all my books, my approach is different than... I don't impose on you any, anything. I try to help to explain the original meaning of the words and the background for you, because you have to take the decision. <laughs> I can decide for you. And uh, that was the result. These were the first three parts. <laughs> and then, you know, at the end I realized that I have, I'm smashing idols left and right, you know. Everybody is wrong, no one understands it. So I said, <laughs> but <laughs> it looks silly. And then in the fourth part, which really is, I put my heart in it. And so what? And I answered the so what. I have full propositions as to how 
someone has to live the Bible. My buddies here know that I don't like the word uh, <clears throat> proud of you and pride. It's just something I don't use. But it gave me joy to have been able to do that because at the beginning, remember, my intention was to write what would have been part one and two. Ended up part, part three about the Old the New Testament and about four where I propose things. Um, so that is the book. Now let me say a few words immediately about people always say it's difficult, it's difficult, it's difficult. Uh, I want you to know that all my work was written always for the public. I don't like to discuss with my colleagues. They are going to say what they want to say. And I used to tell my students, stop asking me if you, I agree and so on. Look, friend, I'm going to teach you what I want to teach you. My colleague is going to teach you what my colleague is going to teach you. Uh, where do you go from there? Well, make an effort to make your decision. What do you mean? You go to a third teacher, right? I'm describing the students. <laughs> they keep going around. You're losing your time. Just take notes, listen, and do what you need to do. But the real thing, and I would like to take my time on that, you, you know, you're a small group, I want to pour my heart, that what is difficult, so remember, I'm writing the book to you and for you, not for my colleagues. Actually, I just told you what I'm saying, no one else said it, so it's not going to help the case. But you have to make the effort to follow what I'm saying to you about the original meaning of the words that you do not know. Remember that. I'm not trying to explain to you the Bible. <laughs> you have to hear it and decide. But if you don't know the meaning of the original, uh, whatever you say is already off the mark. Okay? Let me give a classic example, which I shared. It's right from the beginning. Like for all of you and most of us, Abel is another name. There were two brothers, Cain and Abel. Well, in Hebrew, Cain has a meaning and Abel has a meaning. I don't need to tell you the meaning. It does not matter. But for the original hearer, the work in the mind is different than it is in you. For instance, you can say, well, let's assume that there were two brothers, one is Jim and the other is Nick. But it doesn't work, because in the original, it's Cain and Abel. But in the original language, names have meanings. And those who know Arabic uh, know that. Like, my name is Nadim. Well, oh, it's a nice name. I know, it's a very nice name. Nadim <laughs> sounds nice. A lot of people are impressed with that. <laughs> but Nadim in Arabic is a very rich name. It's the table fellow especially the one who sits with you for a longer time when you want to share things. Anyone who knows Arabic knows that. I don't need to explain to them. But if the author chose to name his hero or anti-hero or the bad guy Nadim, he intends to do that. Okay, so keep this in mind. It's really of the essence. Another example, again, and then will go, because it's striking. This is where I pin down all my colleagues and they are disarmed. <laughs> I said, you know, you have a publican 
short tree, sycamore, and so on. And his name is Zacchaeus. Tell me how many times you heard priests preaching about this text and they give importance to Zacchaeus. Never. But then why did the author say his name was Zacchaeus? Well, um, he was smoking pot and he lied. No, no. If he said Zacchaeus, because it is functional. Again, you may ask me during the question what it means. What it means. And it's very functional in the story. Keep this in mind. It's very functional in the story. Okay? And these things, obviously, even if you guess that it should be so, but you don't know the original meaning, uh, you're always handicapped. <laughs> even if you guess, okay, it has to have a meaning, but you don't know what are you going to do with it. So it's very important to remember this. And from there you all know the importance of the change of names. All this is play, play, play on words. You know. Just to impress you so that you would be more careful for the things I'm going to tell you. And you impress your colleagues when you go out, just text your colleagues. You know, you didn't know what soul means in Hebrew. Soul. King Saul. Shaul means the asked for. The people wanted a king. And Samuel told them that's not a good thing. But they insisted. Now imagine the power of the text. That's why God said to Samuel, they want a king. Let's give them a king. And from there on, everything went downhill. It's powerful. It is much more powerful than Saul. <laughs> you know the TV show, Saul. <laughs> I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. Now, not, don't get too excited, because the Bible is a very big book. <laughs> Meaning that every turn of the page, one has to put the effort to deal with names. Okay? Very important to remember. Perhaps the one thing that you know the most is that Isaac means he laughs. There you go. It's a big deal. Can you imagine calling your son joke? <laughs> no. But God imposed on Abraham and Sarah. To call their son joke because they laughed at God. There you go. Impressive, Father Paul. Impressive. Anyway, okay, all this is not to show off. I don't need to show off. I know these things. Uh, remember that the function of the teacher is to give you info, not to impress you. I don't need to impress you. I'm going to turn 75. And I'm in my glory already. <laughs> so I don't need to impress. But please give attention to that. And with this, I want to move to this power. The Bible is power. The way it stands. Number one, and this is something that struck me and led me on this action. You can Google that, just to make sure that I'm not misleading you. Google scripture and go to word count. 
The word count of the Bible, and I'm going to say it three times, is the double of the Iliad and the Odyssey put together. That's a big deal. <laughs> so forget about, you know, there was an author who was inspired at three o'clock and he started writing. No, no, no. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Why would a literature like this appear suddenly in a language considered by the civilized people of Greece as barbarians. It appeared in Semitic language, language. And Semitic languages do not have vowels, only consonants. It's a strange language. For whom? For the civilized. Remember, Elinus and Varvari. We the Hellenes and the others are barbarians. So keep this in mind. I'm trying to lead you in the background setting. Suddenly these people, considered by the Greeks as being one of the barbarians, you know, produced, uh, not in Latin or Greek, or, and they knew Greek. My thesis also is that the original author of scripture are the ones that translated it in Greek as the Septuagint. Even if it is not so, the fact that it was translated immediately tells you that, you know, somehow Greek was important. But in the intro, very nice, I would like you to read this prologue at least twice a day, the prologue to the book of Sirach, the wisdom of Sirach. It's three paragraphs, very short. At one point, the author said, I translated the work of my grandfather, whose name was Jesus, and I did my best to render it in Greek. But, and this is what I call the curveball, but whatever one does in translation, it doesn't render the original meaning. And that text you're going to find in all my books. <laughs> I get back to that, whatever you do. And my conclusion is that it's an invitation to read it in Greek, but to always remember that the original is Hebrew, meaning that some of you have to make the effort to learn Hebrew, and I'll name you two giants, Origen and Jerome, that learned Hebrew. There you go because you have to deal with the origin. Whether they mastered it or not, that's another thing. I think Jerome mastered it much better than origin, but Orthodox prefer origin because he's one of them. You know. <laughs> but Jerome is the man who learned Hebrew at a time when the vowels to read Hebrew was not created yet. I tell my students who learn Hebrew with me, would you like me to teach you Hebrew without vowels? <laughs> Big deal. He did it. But I'm not talking about his giantnessness. I'm saying, what is it that triggered that he would move from Italy, go to Palestine, stay there to study Hebrew? It's precisely this fact that if you want to be serious, you have to go to the origin. And my classic example to my students is that in high school, the principal can accept you to teach French literature, although 
you don't know French because you can read about it. But no university would give the chair of French literature to someone who does not hold French. It's impossible, especially. It's like someone telling me I read Shakespeare in Arabic. <laughs> okay? So please keep this in mind because I'm giving you facts. It's not that these are my preferences. It is so. You have to be. So what triggered this giant literature? Uh, I believe that what triggered it is the following. You know, and I think my uh, approach is always you have to look at the background. The social, something must have triggered that. And in a nutshell, I would say that uh, what triggered it is uh, the fact that, you know, along the Euphrates and the Tigris, you had a great civilization, millennial civilization. There was a civilization when the Greeks were not on the map yet. And this civilization was very interesting because it was Indo-Aryan on the one hand and Semitic on the other hand, just to make it simple, like Sumer was Indo-Aryan. So it's a place where way before the United States, it was an amalgam of cultures, and people understood that ethnic is not a big deal. It is geographical positioning and brotherhood. In other words, you're thrown here in Phoenix with a Korean and a Japanese and a Saudi. For heaven's sakes, you happen to be here, live together. <laughs> because if you start fighting, <laughs> as simple as that. But still, we need a trigger for that. It is Why is it they were living nicely like this for at least 2,000 years? What triggered a kind of intellectual uprising is that a strange man who was not even a Greek, he was a Macedonian by the name of Alexander, who conquered Thrace and then Greece and then stepped into Asia Minor and went down the shore down to Sidon and Tyre, down to Egypt, and founded the great city of Alexandria. That's no joke, friends. And then went back and hammered the Persian Empire at his heart on the Euphrates in Babylon, and went all the way to India. Friends, that's no joke. And guess what? I'm 74. He died at 30. That, friends, is no joke. Forget about Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Forget about John Wayne. <coughs> they don't compare for his Indian years. He was practical. You remember his story with the Gordian Knot. There was a story, you know, that anyone who undo the knot would conquer Asia. So he looked at it. He took his sword and cut the knot. <laughs> That's the story of the egg of Napoleon. Can you make an egg? Sit without him. Yes, I can. You break it, you put it, it works. So let's remember that. Now, on his way back, he settled in Babylon. Now, Babylon was the big city of the East. And he made it his capital. I want you exactly to feel what the original writer felt. Otherwise, you won't understand what I'm saying you, Scripture is saying. And not feel it in your mind, feel it in your bones. He made Babylon his capital. And 
the story goes, you've read about him, many theories that his generals were upset. We don't want to stay here. We want to go to Macedonia. And one of the theories is that po they poisoned him. True, not, it does not matter. The fact is that suddenly he died in Babylon. Meaning that he brought Babylon to its knees by declaring it a city, the Macedonian. Now, whatever you feel about it, just think, imagine uh, Greg Abdullah when the Steelers lose a game. <laughs> <laughs> On that day, Father Chris won't allow him to preach. It's a big deal. And this is just Pittsburgh. That was not on the map, <laughs> with all the respect. <laughs> We're talking about Babylon that appears in the book of Revelation at the end of the great city. Okay, so there we go. There is something about it. And my thesis is that the intellectual people, because uh, People could not produce such uh, unless they sit down and work together. You need a group of people, you know, to produce. Sat down and produced this literature. Whose thesis? And here I would like your attention because that is the heart of scripture, which makes it unacceptable to each and every one of us. Anyone who tells me, I like Paul, never read Paul because he slams in the face. Men, women, children, good guys, bad guys. How can you like Paul? I mean, let's be serious. He's unlikable. And let's go back to the name. That's why his story in the Bible. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter, because we don't have any other sources. That his original name was Saul. Saul, remember. He was one head above all his brethren, very good-looking, powerful, and God had his name changed to Paul. You're going to look at me because you don't know Latin. Once you know Latin and you realize that Paulus means the little one, then you get it. But look how theology says. God aggrandized soul into Paul. No, that's theology. That's not scripture. God belittled Saul into Paul. And I'm going to challenge you with this. Imagine you're hearing Arabic. Bulos al-Hadim. English, the great Paul. Greek, Pavlos Omegas. Now do it in Latin. The great little one. <laughs> Try it. Preach like this. The great little one. I mean, the Romans would laugh at you. <laughs> Take him to the hospice. Call 911. Here again, very important. Now, I'm bringing Latin... Uh, let me tell you its importance because, and I discussed this on my other books, and here also that the three main uh, writers in the New Testament, Paul, Mark, and Luke, 
they have Latin names. Let's not go into this debate. It's just to show you that the choice of Latin is intended. Okay? And remember that the New Testament was written in the first century and beginning of the second century. It's the Roman Empire. People knew Latin. That's why in the New Testament, sometimes the leader of 100, you have a Greek word, and sometimes you have a transliteration, centurion, from centurion. Okay? So, please, don't imagine that I'm trying to belittle you by my knowledge of the Bible. No, I'm inviting you to realize that if you know, you hear something different. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. And this brings me to say that please make the effort. The first part is going to sound unbearable. All my students, including the one who wrote the foreword to my book, who is a professor of New Testament, said, you know, the trouble with Father Paul is that you have to read him at least twice. There you go. That's why I don't need to write many books. <laughs> See? God is good to me. But the effort, one more. It's not because I bedazzle you. No, I'm asking you to learn a little bit what I'm saying so that you can apply it yourself. Because I did not create Greek. I did not create Hebrew. I did not create Latin. I mean, it's not my work. I had to submit myself. Is this on tape? Can I say that when I went to Romania in the first year, I had to learn four languages at the same time? But just for the tape. <laughs> okay. My name is Paul. I was the great little one in 69, 65, 66. Okay. You had to stay in your room and learn, <laughs> beginning with Romanian. There you go, friends. That's the effort. So please keep this in mind when you're reading, especially the first part. I mean, and don't worry about it. My son asked me, don't linger too much. Just the first time, just keep reading to get to the end to see where I'm going. Don't worry about it. And I quote extensively the Bible because I don't refer to anything else but the Bible. Like if you find a text of one and a half page, don't worry, just follow my lead. But then you have it there. When I put lengthy text, is on purpose, so that otherwise I can put in the footnote, so that you don't have to go and open pages because I want to tell you more about it. But please, just let it lead you, because I already told you, you don't need to agree with me. And I know I'm going to hurt your feelings. And I don't mind if you agree with me or not. <laughs> You're not doing me any favors. Okay, keep this in mind, and do it together, ask, and so on. But I'm good at that in all my, I try to show you how the original, that's why I do, I do a lot of transliteration. I don't write in the original Greek, original Hebrew, it's in Latin characters, so that visually, visually, if I tell you these two words, although in the English translation it's different roots, in the original it's the same root. That's my intention. Visually, you can see it. You don't need to pronounce it. You just visualize that these are the same consonants and the same vowel, and, and I'm not misleading you. It's this. So, these people were irked 
who is this guy that for them, I mean. And remember, it's just, he put the last dagger in their heart by making out of Babylon technically a Greek city, the capital. And now I have to compress things. They reacted by producing this literature, which is unique. Remember what I'm telling you. There is nothing like scripture in the world. Not because the theologians also know so. They do it because it's their business. <laughs> you say, no, because it is so. It is literally impossible to like and endorse scripture. Notice how generally all the Christians mean the good guys and the bad guys. And obviously we are, let Lou say it together, the very well. At least you're honest. <laughs> the others are the bad guys. <laughs> we are the good guys, the bad guys. But you know at this point as well as I do that the good guys are as bad as the bad guys in the Bible. <laughs> now, this, friends, cannot be real in the sense that you can take a census. And that's a classic statement of, of mine. The Bible is impossible. It is impossible to have people that are very bad, all of them, all the time. It's impossible. <laughs> It's a fiction. But this is what you find in the Bible. Notice, let's take a shortcut. Not only the kings of the nations are criticized, but the kings of Israel and Judah, and more so. You know that. It is not the nations. Uh, Israel, read Ezekiel, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah. You see what I'm trying to say? That is strange. The moment you do not admit that it's strange, then you're on your own, I can't help you. But you know very well that you're not reading the Bible. <laughs> it's strange. This is what I call in my lingo the parable, the story of the Bible is hyperbolic. You know, hyperbole is a superlative parabole. Is like someone who is extremely bad, like the penguin of Batman. <laughs> so, scripture, you have to remember that. It's hyperbole. And it's not a unique feature. Take, for instance, the fable of Aesop about the hare and the tortoise. I mean, come on now, you're going to believe that a tortoise won the race. Try it, try it. I'll give you ten years. No, I may not live. Five years. <laughs> and do the practice and tell me. It's not going to happen. But in the story of Aesop, it is so. And the intention, you have guessed, is to teach you a lesson. That's why this famous Psalm 78, which for me, is the heart of my thesis because it's easy to find it there. Let's hear it, the first eight verses which are going to hurt the, your feelings, obviously. But who cares at this point? <laughs> Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. 
incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Teaching is Torah. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, which in Hebrew is another word for parable, which is enigma. In other words, I'm going to speak in lessons. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders which he has wrought. Until now, you're happy. But you're going to frown in a few verses. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law, Torah, in Jacob, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next <coughs> generation might know them, which is the words of God, the children yet unknown, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set hope, their hope in God, and not forget the words of God, but keep his commandments. And now you're going to be so sad, because you are expecting, and to glorify your fathers who taught you, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. By the way, I did not write that. <laughs> I'm saying it because my, they'll tell you, many students think that I wrote the Bible. I did not. The Bible does not allow you to glorify your forbearance. It asks you to remember what they taught you, if they taught you the law of God. And here, I'm going to jump with you to Matthew 23. Listen to what they say. Do not do what they do. As simple as that. Don't argue with me on that, because I spent my life to explain to people, and they got it, but they don't want to get it. That, my friends, is the thesis which you're going to find in Ezekiel, because this parallelism between parallel and dark saying is found only in Ezekiel, where at the beginning you hear, they and their fathers were rebellious. Okay? So, the hardest thing for people in life, and I don't wish it on you, and it's not going to happen, is to be a student of mine. Remember when the people said, but you, Father, that's none of your concern. If I smoke, I smoke. I'm telling you not to smoke. But you, I'm no reference. My teaching is a reference because I'm telling you what the Bible is saying. I'm sure I made my point. That's fantastic. In 40 minutes, that's not bad. There you go. I chose this text, obvious, but I can show you page after page. I mean, you know, read Paul and you will realize. He goes to preach the, the Gentiles and he calls them dumb already. He goes to preach the Galatians to make the Christians, and he does not use the American approach of positive reinforcement. 
he calls them twice in a row brainless in chapter 3, which is the original meaning of anointy. Now, come on, friends. How are you going to like Paul? I'm sure the Galatians would have burned his letter. That's why the school of Paul was smart. They kept the original copy the way the bishop does. He sends you a copy in the email, but he keeps the original in the archives. Because you don't burn it. <laughs> okay, now, let it be on the record that I did not address you as brainless. I did not say that. I am saying that this is what you Now, it is that aspect of the Bible that is unique, and I would like to comment on it and end with that that these people realized that to find Alexander with the sword and get the people uprising and so on and make a Boston Tea Party and so on is not going to work. It's a figment of your imagination. What is the alternative? Immediately the people were to, to say to submit. And these people said, no, there is a third choice which is found only in Scripture. The third choice is to produce a literature and say the following. We are in this situation as a punishment because we did not listen to our deity. Notice the trick here. Meaning they emasculated Alexander. Meaning it's not you punished us. You were sent by our God, and you've heard this in all the prophets, to punish us because we did not listen to the teaching of the Lord. In spite of the fact that we were a great civilization, you know how great civilization have its ego, so I'm not saying that the Babylonians uh, were better than the Greeks. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. We get puffed up. Okay? You have Russia, you have China, you have the US, you have India. Nothing changed under the sun. You know, when you grew up, when you grow up in the Middle East, you know these things already. Nothing changes under the sun. But the only novel thing under the sun, really novel, unique of its kind, is that people who were under the boot someone else did not do as the John Wayne and Clint Eastwood movies say, somehow a superhero is going to save us. No. I want you to listen very carefully. We are where we are because we were puffed up and disobedient and thought that no one can touch us. And suddenly, like a lightning, literal lightning, Alexander crushed all these minds. When you go home, look at the map I'm talking about. Forget about scripture, postpone until tomorrow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Sweeping, literally. And yet, they said to him, I mean, in their literature, that whatever you imagine, and whatever my, our own people imagine is wrong. The only truth is that it was a wake-up call 
but oriental style. Two slaps. <laughs> not sweetheart, it's time for you to no, 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 no. You're not gonna find this in the Bible, trust me on that. Doesn't work like that. And you know, you know, and your children are not going to get you have to push them in the bus. Okay? That's what scripture is saying. Meaning you have no right to be arrogant and imagine that you are more righteous than the one who wronged you. It doesn't matter. Because when you are in his, in his situation, you're going to do the same and you read the Bible. That's what Solomon and his son did with the victim. You know that. You know that. And Amos tell them in the name of God, I brought these people out of the slavery of Egypt to give them freedom in this land and you stun them under your boot. And he's speaking to whom? To the leaders of the people. Let's do a jump. That's why in the Bible, very early, very, very early, the story of Adam and Eve is a story of disobedience. Without no exception. Why? I love theologians. Why did he ask them not to eat from that tree? It doesn't matter. He just felt like it. Do not eat from this tree. Now, obviously, it's more important because it's the tree of arrogance, the knowledge of good and evil. This is God's only. When you start eating from that tree, I will not allow you to eat from the tree of life. And we are still in chapter 2 of Genesis. And my thesis in the book, my students make fun of me, is that the entire message of the Bible is contained in chapters 1 through 4 of Genesis. So my students said, so I have to read only these four chapters. I said, Yes, but to understand them, to have to read the rest of the Bible. <laughs> it's a powerful literature, and I prove it in my book. Actually, I started a podcast, and I prove it to you there. Everything is there. Everything. Before the genealogy of Adam appears. Very beautiful twist. Crushes your ego. You were not yet on the map, and yet I said it all. Again, I'm sure you can have the feel that it may be so, because these chapters are very impressive. That the sun and the moon are not named. There is only one God that creates everything. And I know I'm going to hurt your feelings because you are theologians at heart. He equalizes animal and human being on the sixth day. Forget about the human being is special. No. He has a special assignment. It doesn't make him special. How do I know that? Let's go for this nice book. Uh, yeah, I know. I urge the people because they call me the Protestant, the Orthodox, because I love to quote the Bible. <laughs> but I know it better than the Protestants. That's the trouble of my students. Listen to this opening of the first book of the prophetic books. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Sons have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the ass its master's grip, but Israel does not know. My people does not understand. It's all there. In other words, the animal is better than you. <laughs> Don't be puffed up. And let me make my ultimate jump. That's why, and that is my real discovery, that the setting of the thesis of the biblical writers was the Syrian desert, where you have a shepherd, remember that God is a shepherd, and you have his family that are one with the sheep. Don't tell me you understand what I'm saying. You have to go to the Syrian desert and see a Bedouin living there. There is no difference between human being and sheep. You don't slaughter sheep. They are part of you. You take their wool, you take their milk, and if needed, you kill one. Because anyway, he's going to die. People make a big deal about death. And, you know, in the Bible, it's no big deal. They're going to die. Psalm 82, God speaking to the other gods. You are gods, but you are like sons of men. Don't die. No joke. But you don't go around and killing 15 sheep at a time. You don't do that. It's stupid. Sheep. Sheep. How many times you hear about this? And my suggestion to you is... If you want to do something for the next month, just read the book of Psalms from cover to cover without stopping. And don't pray. Don't feel it. Read it ten times in a row. Trust me, you will get it. The book of Psalms is the scriptural story. That's why in the Orthodox tradition, it is read while the monks and the nuns are seated. Kathisma. You have to sit down. Forget about the Russians, they don't sit. <laughs> sit down, because they need you to be relaxed. <coughs> and they go through the entire book of Psalm in one week. I'm trader orthodox. This is what irritates my students. I know it all. Hear it. But don't meditate on it. Just hear it. The words. And you're going to hit that's Psalm 80. Two Psalms after 78 and two Psalms before 82 where God is the only God. You see, Master. And you hear the following, which is the heart of the matter. And you hear, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who leadest Joseph like a flock, Thou who art enthroned upon the cherubim. So forget about church architecture and so on. I know Greg doesn't like me for that. Forget about it. Listen to me. The one seated above the cherubim is the shepherd. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy might and come to save us. 
He's no wimp, that shepherd. He's no wimp. He puts down Pharaoh. And notice this three times. Whenever something is repeated these times, they say, Restore us, O God. Let thy face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let thy face shine that we may be saved. And then in 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let thy face shine that we may be saved. Powerful. But you have to submit. Not to Alexander. Not to Saul. Definitely not to David. You have to submit to the shepherd of Israel. And you all know that, that the sole king of Israel, king of Israel, is who? God, the shepherd of Israel. And you know the story of Samuel. When they wanted a king, he told them that you have only one king, that is God. And let me finish with this. Again, the Hebrew is very important, and that's very hard to explain. That the word king in the Semitic language is very power. It means the proprietor, the owner. That's why in the Bible we are the slaves of God. Romans 6, Exodus, and so on. And don't you ever think twice about it. If you don't want to be the slave of God, Paul says in Romans, you're going to be the slave of someone else. And good luck to you. <laughs> who says that's God? You want to follow others? I mean, can you imagine a God who would tell his people, you want to follow other gods? Be my guests. Who, who says that? Imagine you as a parent. Your children are parents. I mean, you never did it. But I did it. Oh, I would like to leave you and go and live with my uncle. I'll pay you one way ticket. But once you're there, remember, let your uncle pay your tuition and feed you. And I said this to all my old preachers. Don't mess. But by saying this, I'm saying at the same time as the son that it doesn't mean that I'm perfect. Do you follow what I'm saying? But I'm your parent. And the parent's mission is to teach Psalm 78. And that's the invitation ultimate to all of us to remember the day of baptism when the priest tells you nicely, these children are not yours anymore. <laughs> They are in your care from now on. And I want to leave you with this statement that you hear only in the Middle East, among the Arabs. When you ask someone how many children you have, the classic answers, whatever it is, three that are gods. Classic. So it's a question of mental attitude. It's not uh, like it, don't like it. <laughs> okay, how many times mothers would tell me, 
that and they are lying, you know. It's so nice for me to wake up at night and to clean my baby. And No, you don't love it and you don't like it. <laughs> Just settle for that. You have to do it, period. And that is very important to teach early your children. And I'm going to leave you with my last statement, hurt your feelings. I tell always the children to their face in the present moment, don't allow your parents to tell you that they did this out of love and don't worry about it. In scripture it is incorrect. It is God that takes care of you. And at the end of Isaiah, there's a text that brings tears to my eyes at the time. That I shall love you more than your own mother loves you. Come on. Well, I'm saying scripture. Don't blame it on me. I know my students believe that I wrote it, but it's not true. I'm saying to what scripture, which means... Scripture is holy ground. When you teach it, make sure to remember to teach it. And when your students tell you, but uh, you, Father Paul, uh, don't do all this, you're not perfect. I said, my dear friend, I knew it before your father met your mother, before you were born. Don't worry about it, whether I'm perfect or not. The teaching is for you to communicate as a duty assigned to your children that are God's, because the flock is God's flock, it is not yours. The oneness of the shepherd, when you have it in Ezekiel 34, 37. And I can speak for another three hours, but Father, this is not my hour. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.